This morning we will be beginning chapter 8 of Luke with a familiar story, perhaps one of the most familiar parables in the Bible. It is often called the parable of the sower. It could at times just as well be called the parable of the seed or even the parable of the soils as we look at this parable together. If you would please give your attention to the reading of God's Word. The Word of the Lord is completely without error. The Word of the Lord is completely sufficient. And the Word of the Lord is completely authoritative. Luke chapter 8. Soon afterwards, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. And the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities. Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's household manager, and Susanna and many others, who provided for them out of their means. And when a great crowd was gathering and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell along the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. And some fell on the rock, and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it. And some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. As he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts, so that they may not believe and be saved. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear. But as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And their fruit does not mature. As for that in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast in honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. Thus far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray for His blessing upon it. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we ask this morning, Lord, that You would meet with us in Your Word. That You would remind us, O Lord, that You speak. Unlike all the false gods, O Lord, You speak. You hear, you know. We ask that you would teach us from this 
section of your servant Luke. And we ask it in the name of our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, we come this morning in chapter 8 to a a well-known section of Luke's Gospel. It is a very famous parable. It is a parable that's treated by the other Gospel writers as well, Matthew and Mark. And as is any occasion, when we come across a passage that's very familiar to us, we must be careful not to fill in the blanks or to assume what something means. We must look to the Lord's Word and study it and hear what He has to tell us from it. And so this morning we have a parable of a sower who goes out and sows seed. But he is met with differing types of soil, which lead to differing results in what he is planting. This morning we will begin by looking at Jesus' context for the parable. That The context for this is the popularity that Jesus maintains here early in His ministry. And this leads to Him speaking in parables. The second thing we will look at is the poor soil that these seed fall upon. There specifically actually are three kinds of poor soil that it goes upon. And then lastly, we will look at the proper soil that Jesus describes for us. How when the seed falls on the proper soil, it bears great fruit. Popularity and parables, poor soil and proper soil. Well, let's begin then by looking at the context for this parable. Jesus has become very popular at this point in His ministry. And His popularity is directly related to his ministry. He is going out and about through varying towns, as we see in verse 2, ministering to the people. He is a man who has great compassion. He is a Savior who has great compassion for those who are hurting. As he goes throughout town to town, he goes healing those who are afflicted with pain and with suffering. Jesus is not simply trying to teach and to get others to understand. No, He is a compassionate Savior. He is bringing healing. But He also brings freedom, does He not? We see here the story of Mary Magdalene, who had seven demons. Not one, not two, but seven demons oppressing her will. And Jesus freed her from that bondage so that she might serve the Lord. The third thing that we see as Luke describes it for us here is that Jesus not only has compassion for people in general, He not only wants freedom for people in general, He knows His people by name. Luke takes the time to name three women for us. Now, this may seem not to be a significant matter, but it is really remarkable. Because, you see, at this point, point in history, any historian, Thucydides, Herodotus, any historian of the era would take no notice of women. They were on the lowest edges of society. They were not famous. They didn't do anything particular. But you see, women are important to Jesus. And because of that, they're important to Luke. 
Three of them are named. Two of them we don't even hear afterwards in the Scriptures. But they're so important to Jesus that they're given a name in Scripture. But His main purpose is not just healing and freeing. Jesus' main purpose is found here in verse 1 of chapter 8. He goes throughout cities and villages proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God. This is Jesus' main purpose. He doesn't stay in one place. He goes out and about proclaiming the truth. And the language that Luke uses to describe what Jesus is doing is very vivid. He is heralding the truth. And you know what a herald looks like, don't you? He's one of those men in a, in a large, bright get-up with a humongous trumpet that he blows and everyone hears and they can't wait to hear the news. Hear ye, hear ye. And everyone stops and listens. That's what Jesus is doing. He's getting everyone's attention for the Gospel. Luke also tells us that He is proclaiming the good news, bringing the good news of the Kingdom of God. But that word is also more vivid. He is actually gospeling. Jesus is going about and with everything He does and says, bringing the Gospel to bear. Well, it shouldn't surprise us then that the effects of what Jesus is doing is to bring a great many people to His side, to hear Him, to touch Him, to want to know Him. And this is, of course, because the people in Galilee at this time are remarkably like the people in Katy, Texas. They're people who have needs. They're people who are looking for answers to life. Wanting to know how they can keep peace together their marriage. Wanting to know how they can best raise their children. Wanting to know what sort of work they should do and how they should go about their work. You see, the people of this time are the same as the people of our time. We have needs. We're also looking for more, aren't we? We want to find out how we can be the most that we can be, how we can follow the Lord with the greatest fervor, how we can make the greatest impact in our families and in our communities. And for that, the people go to Jesus. There's a a certain consistency about this, isn't there? Do you see? It's as Jesus goes to towns, to cities, to villages, to the countryside, it doesn't matter where He goes. People have the same kinds of needs. That's true in our day as well. People might not dress like Texans in South America. I don't know if they have 10-gallon hats in Indonesia. I don't know if they wear boots in Japan. But I can say this, that all around the world, people have the same kinds of needs that you do sitting right now. And so all of these great crowds come up to Jesus and Jesus then begins to communicate to them the nature of the kingdom of God. And He does it specifically and intentionally in a parable. Now, this is the first major parable in Luke. We've seen two brief parables in Luke 6, the the parable of the house being built on sand. In Luke 7, the parable of the two debtors. But you need to think of those as like the previews at the movie theater. They're interesting. They whet your appetite. But you can't wait for the whole feature. 
And this is the feature. This is the first full-length parable that Jesus will not only tell us, but He will interpret for us. So, what exactly is a parable? I think this is one of the questions that we just assume that if we're in church... And if we're Christians, we should know the answer to. It's one of those terms that gets thrown out, and if we're not sure, we just nod our heads and act like we understand. Because everyone knows that, don't they? Well, no, I don't think it's as easy as that. A basic definition that has been used of a parable is that it is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Now, that might be a bit of a stretch, Because you see, oftentimes, what our temptation is, is to do the same thing that some of the early church fathers did, which is to to look at the parables and to try and assign some kind of spiritual meaning to every single thing in the parable. And we begin to stretch it to its breaking point. We're not just satisfied to look at the types of soils, We want to examine the birds and what kind of birds they are because that would affect the spirituality of the meaning. We want to know how long the path is because that would help us to understand some super secret spiritual meaning. As a matter of fact, most parables aren't allegories like Pilgrim's Progress. The best way to think about a parable might be that it is an easy-to-follow story with a main point that Jesus wants us to get. It shouldn't surprise us that Jesus gives stories and illustrations that we can easily latch onto, that we want to hear, that we understand and have experienced. It helps us to understand. We do this even ourselves, don't we? You don't need to be a preacher to use illustrations. Someone may ask you, what kind of a job you have. And as you begin to describe it, perhaps you watch their eyes glaze over as you go to the more technical aspects and you say something, well, you know, it's it's like this. And you begin to talk about nature or the home or families by way of illustration. That's what a parable is. Now, this parable happens to be one of the more allegorical parables in all of the Bible. Jesus helps us to understand this by saying, well, this is that, and this is that. Now, why would Jesus speak in parables? Why would he go to this difficulty? Well, I think first and foremost, it's for understanding. He gives us an illustration, a word picture, so that we can understand a spiritual and gospel truth. But secondly, it's for application. Because a parable is not just something to be understood. A parable is something that is to be understood such that we can apply it to our lives. So that we can understand how it fits into our everyday lives. Because you see, the Bible is not just something we go to school for. The Bible and its truth is to be incorporated into every aspect of our lives. But there's a third reason why Jesus speaks in parables. And I know it's true because he tells us himself, although it's shocking as we hear it. It's not something we expect to hear from Jesus' lips. Jesus tells us that he speaks in parables in verse 10 so that some others 
may not see, and when they hear that they may not understand. Jesus says He speaks in parables to discriminate in the classic and good sense of the word, to distinguish between those that are His and those who are not. You see, it requires spiritual effort to understand a parable. And those who are not willing to put that effort in show that they care not for the things of God. Jesus wants you, if you trust Him by faith, and you seek to follow Him, to listen to the parable and to hear. Look at the end of verse 8. After Jesus has told the parables, He called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, the translation there makes it seem like you're permitted to hear. You're safe to hear. That's not what Jesus means. It's a command. It's more like, He who has ears to hear, you better listen. Now, pay attention. It's a command. And so if we are going to hear and we are going to listen, what is required of us is that we cannot be casual hearers. We must have a spiritual earnestness about us. We must be open to hearing hard truths. And they begin with Jesus telling us about the poor soil. He tells us of a sower who went and sowed seed. Now you have to get the picture here in your mind of what Ancient Israelite agriculture was like. Don't have in your mind a big, huge cornfield with gigantic combines and the way that they plant. No, you picture more a man like Johnny Appleseed with a pouch slung around his shoulder filled with seed. And he goes and walks throughout the land with handfuls of seed, scattering it in both directions. You see, how they would plant in these days was they would not cut furrows first and then plant seeds. They would scatter the seeds and then bring the plow over the land, which would turn over the land and would cause the seeds to be planted and germinate. And so the sower here is going throughout the land, tossing seed here and there. And we have to understand, this land is not great farmland. We are not talking about Iowa. We're not talking about Kansas. Think more northern Maine. Rocky. Patches. You see, you just scatter where you will, hoping that you can get enough of a crop This is the context of what is before us. And you see, in these lands, there would not be gigantic farms. There would be small plots in which people would walk through. And what would happen is the same thing that happens in areas that people camp or in the back 40 of a large piece of property. People walk in the same spots over and over and over again. They walk where the path is worn, not over trees and bushes and prickers. And the more they do that, the more that land becomes a road and the less it becomes a farm. And that's what's happening here. Zigzagging throughout the land would be these paths. And so there would be good land intersected by these paths. And as the the sower lays his seed, some will fall on these paths. And you have to understand, they're very hard. They're very difficult to plant on. 
picture Texas clay in July. To give you an idea. It would be a surprise if the seed didn't bounce once it had hit the ground. And the sower goes and he sows the seed and some of it lands on these paths and just what you imagine would happen happens. The seed stays on the top. It cannot be planted. It doesn't germinate. And the birds, great flocks of them say, it's an all-you-can-eat buffet. This is wonderful. And they swoop down, just as you can imagine in your mind's eyes, birds doing in big flocks, and they pick every last seed off for food. All that's left there, that's bounced off the ground, is gone. Now, the issue here is the soil, isn't it? And Jesus gives us the reality behind this. He describes what this soil is. He says the seed is the Word of God. So, Jesus... And his ministers are sowing the word of God amongst hearts. And the hearts of the ones who are along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts. So that they may not believe and be saved. You see, the problem is not in the seed. God's word is not the problem. We don't need to change that. The problem is not in the presentation of the Word, in the scattering. No. The problem is in the heart. It's in the soil. You see, Jesus is describing hearts that are hard, that are not open to the Word, where the Word cannot germinate and take root and grow deep. And you see, that leaves, those hard hearts leave themselves vulnerable to the attacks of our enemy. For he is always ready to attack. Do you see? Luke describes it vividly. He says, The ones on the path are those who have heard. Then, right away, as soon as you can say it, the devil comes and scoops them away. You see, Satan doesn't desire any to be saved. He attacks as soon as is possible. And he will use any means necessary. He works upon the natural hardness of our hearts and our desires to have our own needs met and to not think about others. And Satan can actually be most effective in church. There's a wonderful passage in C.S. Lewis's Screwtape Letters. I don't often read a text to you all, but I'd like you to get an idea from this. Screwtape is advising his student demon about how to get a man back into their clutches who has wandered into church. And he says, one of our great allies at present is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her spread throughout all time and space, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. No. That, I confess, is a spectacle which would make our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, it is quite invisible to these humans. When he goes inside, he sees the local grocer with a rather oily expression on his face, bustling up to offer him a shiny little book containing a liturgy which neither understands. When he gets to his pew and looks around him, he sees that selection of his neighbors whom he has avoided, 
You may want to lean pretty heavily on those neighbors. Make his mind flit to and fro between the expression, the body of Christ, and the actual faces in the next pew. It matters little, of course, what kind of people the next pew really contains. You may know one of them to be a great warrior on the enemy's side. No matter. Your patient, thanks to our Father below, is a fool. Provide that any of those neighbors sing out of tune, or have boots that squeak, or double chins, or odd clothes. The patient will quite easily believe that their religion must somehow be ridiculous. You see, this is what Satan does. He takes all of our foibles, he takes all of our difficulties, and he works with the natural hardness of heart to grab the word away from us. There is a second type of heart, of soil, that Jesus describes. It is a shallow soil. He says, some of the seed falls on a rock. Now, immediately I need to correct the visual image in your mind, because you will say, well, better to be on the path than be on the rock, because you're thinking of some huge boulder, or the rock of Gibraltar, or some gigantic slab of stone. That's not what Jesus means here. What he means is the hard rock that is underneath a thin layer of soil. So there is what looks to be good soil, but underneath, not very far, is a slab of rock you cannot break through. This kind of soil, when the seed goes into it, begins to germinate and begins to grow. But the problem is, is that it is limited. You know the old saying, if you look at a tree... As big as the branches are above the tree, that's how deep the roots are under the ground, right? Well, if you're bounded by rock and you're a plant, you can't get down into the soil. You cannot get to the nutrients. You cannot get the moisture, the water you need. And so you cease to grow. You become vulnerable to the heat of the sun. And this is what it is like for those who have little depth of soil in their heart. You see, what happens is some believe quickly and with great joy. There is an emotion that takes over, but there's no deep root. They're not ready for trials. And when difficulties and challenges come, when the heat of persecution comes, they're scorched because they don't have depth of root They become disillusioned with God's providence. And they begin to say things like, I can't believe in a God that would do this. Trying to make God in their image. You see it, in the reality, these sorts of people don't want Jesus. They want His blessings. And you see, we need to be careful to examine our hearts, to see that there is depth of soil for the Spirit to plant the Word to grow. And there is a real challenge. There is especially a real challenge for you young people. Because you see, this kind of heart is exposed in college. You know, when you move away, and you're not forced to go to church by dad and mom. No one is making you read your Bible. No one is watching over you to see if you pray. You see, it is all up to you. And if there is no depth of soil, if there is no reality to your profession, 
then it will peter out. It also points to the importance that we must have to discipleship and to growth in the Christian life. Mark it down in your calendars. You're about to hear a preacher tell you that there is more to the Christian life than hearing sermons. Hearing sermons is all well and good. But there must be a depth to our lives. We must be honest about the hardships that we will face and honest with others. We must treat the Christian life the same way we might treat marriage. How many of you ladies get up each morning and as you get ready to make breakfast and do the things you need to do around the house, first put on your wedding gown. Pull the veil down. Carry the bouquet. No. Because you see, that's not what marriage is about. Marriage is about the day-to-day difficulties. Marriage is about persevering through bad days and arguments and sorrows. Sharing joys. You see, that's what the Christian life is about. When by faith we profess Jesus is Lord, that is the beginning of the journey, not the end. There is a third kind of soil that Jesus warns us of. And it actually has three natures. It is the entanglement of the world. We might say the entangled hearted. Jesus says that some of the seed is sown and it's sown among thorns. And the thorns grow up with it and choke it. Now, do not picture here the sharp, pointy thorns on a rose. That's not what Jesus means. What He means by thorns are something that all of you all know very well. Weeds. You know those things that sprout up on your lawn, in your garden, amongst your shrubs, in your flowers. You know the things that you never have to feed, never have to water. You know, as you drive down the road, you can tell them immediately because if they haven't gotten to mowing the in-between lanes, there's grass and then there's four or five foot tall weeds. Right? And we don't like weeds in our lawn and in our gardens, do we? Why? Well, it's not just because they look ugly, because they're actually some very floral-like weeds. We don't like weeds because what they do is they take over. They choke the life out of what we're trying to grow. We want to grow tomatoes. We don't want the weeds to kill the tomatoes. We want to grow flowers. We don't want them overrun with weeds. You see, that's what weeds do. They choke the life literally out of the good fruit we are trying to produce. And this is a vivid image for what happens in our lives. You see, the word can be sown amongst thorns, weeds. And the first kind of weed is the weed of worry. You see here, Jesus says in verse 14, Some of those who hear, but as they go their way, they are choked by the cares of life. There is a start of going for Jesus. A start of turning to Jesus. But in reality, the focus is still upon ourselves. What it is always about is what Jesus could give. 
And so when we don't see the things that we want, when we don't have the life that we think we deserve, we begin to doubt Jesus as if it's somehow His fault. But you see, what we are called to is to focus upon the Lord, not upon our circumstances. God doesn't want us busy worrying about things. He wants us seeing His work in the midst of our challenges and difficulties. But if we are not careful, this will overrun our life and our growth in the Spirit. Because we all know, all of us have more than enough things to worry about. Right? The second kind of weed that Jesus describes is the weed of wealth. He says, some are choked by the riches of life. Now, if there were a particularly American weed, if I were to plant a flag in a weed, it would be the weed of wealth. Because after all, we are blessed beyond all we can imagine here in America, aren't we? The poorest of the poor here only have basic cable. Only have one car. And horrors. Children. There are some families where they only have one computer they have to share. You see, we are so blessed. We have so many things that are given to us. And the temptation, the problem that we can face is to be drawn to that. We can spend more time planning our next vacation than planning our spiritual growth. We spend more time trying to get ahead financially to set ourselves up for relaxation and ease than we do planning to leave a legacy of faith for our family. What we must remember is that everything that we have, the clothes that you are wearing, the car that brought you here, the home that you have is all temporary. It's all going to go away. None of it is eternal. And so we cannot be choked in our spiritual life by the weed of wealth. We must focus on the Lord. The third kind of weed that Jesus describes is the weed of wonders. That is, the pleasures of life. Now, if we are honest with ourselves, there are a lot of neat things in the world, aren't there? There are a lot of things that gather our attention. Majestic forests, beautiful lakes and rivers, beautiful buildings, things that have been invented and created, things that make our lives easier and better. The problem is, is we can become so focused upon those things and gathering those things and seeing those things in our lives that we are completely distracted from the Lord. There's a good example of this in the Bible in the person of Esau. He became distracted by a bucket of stew. He was distracted away from his father, away from his inheritance, and away from God by a thing. You see, Jesus says, the Word of God might be sown in your life, but if you let the weeds of life choke it out, it will not see growth. It will, in the words of Jesus... Keep us from maturity, in verse 14. It will keep us from reaching our goal. And so what we have to do is always have an attitude that we are not satisfied with our lives. That we are to press on. 
Don't be happy if your parents think you are on a good path. Want more for yourself. Don't be pleased because your wife thinks you're a leader in the home. Press on for more. Don't be pleased because your household runs well. Seek more of the Lord and to grow in faith. And you see, this leads us to the fourth kind of soil. The proper soil. The soil that is a heart that is ready for the Word. The sower goes and he sows the seed. And some falls, in verse 8, into good soil and it grew. And it yielded a hundredfold. Jesus tells us that the good soil are those who, hearing the Word, hold it fast in an honest and good heart and bear fruit with patience. So what is this good soil that we should seek to, em- to see in our lives? Well, first of all, it's everything that the others are not. It is a heart that is not hardened by sin to give place to Satan. It is a heart that is not shallow to give up in trials and tribulations. It is a heart that is not entangled with the things of the world to get choked by distraction. No, it is a heart that is marked most by holding fast to the Word. Isn't that interesting? The word there that Luke uses, hold fast, means to cling. To hold on for dear life. You know what that's like, don't you? Perhaps you were on a bit too fast of an amusement park ride one day. And they knew you were on there because when you got off, they could see your nail marks on the seat. You're clinging for dear life. This is what it means to cling to the Word of God, to never let go, to hold such that you know you won't make it if you let go. And the the wonderful thing here is, is that the soil that holds on to that Word of God, gets the seed and it grows within us. And not only are we able to face the dangers and trials of life, but we grow in the image of Jesus. We hold fast to the Word of God. This kind of heart is also a heart that is honest. It is sincere in its desire to grow. Don't seek to read God's Word or to pray or to be in church so that you can get more business. So that others will think better of you. Because you think it's expected of you. This good soil is good and honest. But it's also something that we don't like much in America. It's patient. Do you see that at the end of verse 15? It bears fruit with patience. It perseveres through trials. It waits on God to see growth. Think about some of the most majestic, beautiful plants in your yard or in your neighborhood. Tall, sweeping in their breadth. Did they grow overnight? For some of you, you planted a tree as a sapling. And you show your grandchildren that the tree has grown. We need to be patient with the Word of God. A good heart not only bears fruit in us, however. A good heart is also ready to share the Word of God. It bears fruit beyond us. This is the promise that Jesus gives us. He doesn't say that the good soil 
as the seed falls into it, gives fruit. He says, no, it brings forth fruit one hundredfold. This is part of what the good heart does. It holds on to the promise of Jesus and we come full cycle. We then become scatterers of the seed. And we watch it grow in other places. This is how the seed grows, how the fields are white with harvest. And we are called to scatter it abroad, even as the sower has said. You see, for many of us, we're afraid of failure. And the Word takes root in our heart, and we're reluctant to share God's Word. Because we might get rebuked. Because someone might not be interested. And so we think that what we ought to do is handle this the way any good business or salesman does. We ought to follow good leads, not bad ones. And let's test and see. No. You see, that's what the parable is about. Jesus scatters his seed indiscriminately. As Charles Spurgeon puts it well in a sermon on this text. He says, we are to leave the seed to God. We are bound to preach the gospel, whether men will hear or whether they will forbear. Let men's hearts be what they may. I am not loosed from my obligation to sow the seed on the rock as well as the furrow, on the highway as well as the plowed field. You see, the good heart desires to see the Word of God scattered everywhere that it might take root. In conclusion then, is the Word bearing fruit in your life? As you hear the Word preached, as you read the Word, as you study the Word, is it just something you know or know about? Or is it something that changes who you are? Does it change your relationships with others? Does it make you more compassionate? Does it make you eager to serve others? Does it make you long to see others understand this Word as well? Are you patiently nurturing the Word in your life? You see, the parable here teaches us that we are to hold fast to the Word of God, knowing that even as we do so, the Lord holds fast to you. Let's pray.